Hello and welcome to the Event Lab podcast, your window into the events conversation, brought to you by Hirespace. In this episode, we'll be bringing you some expert tips on project management from Fergus O'Connell, the author of the project management book. It seems to me that it's not really, like the project may be complicated, you know, something like the channel tunnel or building the shard or something, but, but project management isn't complicated. Then we've got a tasty feature as Benjamin Edmonds joins Emile Bernard, co-founder and head of innovation, and Grace Bryan, head of events and brand partnerships at Smith and Sinclair, a purveyor of boozy confection and experiences. Um, and the whole premise of it was we were trying to explore adult play. Kids, adults acting like kids just have that childlike inhibition. But first, boycotting the Dorchester how has the event industry responded to Brunei's persecution of LGBT people? Should phones be left out of meetings? And 900 million votes. Can the events industry learn from the logistics of the Indian election? Ed Poland is back on hosting duty, and this episode he is joined by Sam Allen and Richard Groves for the News Digest. Evening, everyone. Evening, Ed. Good evening, Ed. We're going to cut straight to a question from the audience. I think it's something a lot of people are talking about. So this is uh, Robin, doesn't give uh, a company, but Robin asks, should the UK events industry boycott the Dorchester based on recent events in Brunei? So ultimately, the um, Dorchester group are owned um, by Brunei. And Brunei have just brought in um, new laws and legislations in terms of homosexuality. And that means that if people are caught in a homosexual act, then they can be punished by stoning, being put to death. I think on a humanitarian level, it is appalling and therefore it should be, people should stand up about it. And George Clooney, who first raised it on a major social engineering platform, has, has put it out there. Obviously, the question also exists. The people that work in the Dorchester Group hotels are not responsible for what the Sultan Brunei does, and therefore, how is this going to affect them? And these are people who are working behind the bars and in the kitchens and cleaning bedrooms who are earning London living wage and below. How how will they react to it? And and for no fault of their own, they might suddenly realise that they're being laid off because there isn't enough work. But then, as a society, we stand up for society's rights. I mean, companies who have already pulled events at the, the Dorchester include the Police Federation, Jewish Care, UK Business Angels Associations, TV Choice Awards, Financial Times, not just the hotel. STA Travel decided it will no longer sell Royal Brunei Airlines on its website. Deutsche Bank, I think, have gone so far as to ban their staff from staying in Brunei-owned hotels. So it's gathering momentum. Do you think it'll make a difference? Um, I think that I think there's a couple of points. You know, human rights issues uh, across the globe, and if we actually look at other brands, other organisations, other companies that have, you know, bad human rights uh, things happening, then I don't know what we'd be buying. It's a can of worms, isn't it's it? It's a huge mm. can of worms. You know, and I don't want to say because I think it's absolutely. Um, absolutely appalled by this new law but we've also got to take into account that um, homosexuality was banned in that country 10 years ago Mm. and who who made a stand at that point in terms of that being completely wrong so there's a really 
yeah, we're in a cobweb here of, of human rights versus social media outcry versus being responsible as meeting and events bookers. I think it's too big a deal not to not to be thinking about it from an event organizer point of view mm. and a consideration that, you know, you you know, with this, you know, how is it going to reflect your brand supporting you know, these organisations, but yet, like Richard, I completely feel for the people inside these, you know, organisations, Coworth Park, you know, they're, they're great people, the sales teams and marketing teams, everybody who's working in there, you know, they're also caught in this as well. Tricky. We, you know, if you don't make a noise about these, someone bringing such a medieval and barbaric policy, then, you know, we're not standing up for what we've achieved in the last 150 years, you know, moving on from slave trade. You know, it's, it's an open world and, and you know, you can't, I wouldn't have thought, get away with that in a modern world. I guess we're in a kind of reasonably privileged position in which we kind of do have a voice and we, we, we are in that kind of position where we can stand up and make make a stand on... We have to make a stand. Um, we're, a, you know, we're a global events world, events sector. Um, we have a lot of a voice. And I think one of the key things that we've tackled over the last probably 10 years is diversity and inclusion. And I think it would be wrong not to highlight this as a, as a really, really big deal. We don't stand for it as a sector. Mm. We, you know, that's something that, you know, we really are championing. And so this doesn't go with and those a, values. And then as a, an aside to that, we've been filling in a procurement portal for Dubai Expo 2020. Mm -hmm. And in that, uh, they've been asking what the portion of um, women have senior positions in your company and, and mm. what the um, board structure is and what's the ownership structure and also on diversity as well. So it's interesting that coming out of a region that one would have thought like Saudi Arabia and things that you know, some of them are, are slightly behind the curve on all this. In that instance, they're really pushing for diversity and, and, and women's rights in, in business. Every step of everything we, you know, we, we do as events professionals or anyone else, we're going to come across brands, you know, the, the, the owners of which perhaps have suspect human rights records mm. as a tricky one so actually i saw that the, the dorchester collections they've had to deactivate the the, the social company's media social media channels, yeah. because of personal abuse directed at their employers i mean that clearly isn't fair we know the the guys on the ground at the the dorchester the, the, the dorchester there you know they're 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 brilliant. I don't know how you shield them from from all this. Well, how do you, you shield anyone from those, those things? That's the you know this freedom of speech with social media, which would be a whole other topic to cover at mm. a, a news digest one day. Worth um. So the 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 Dorchester Collection, the hotel group, have released a statement on it. So they say Dorchester Collection is an inclusive and diverse company and does not tolerate any form of discrimination. Dorchester Collection's code emphasizes equality, respect, and integrity in all areas of our operation and strongly values people and cultural diversity among our guests and employees. And certainly I don't think any of us have seen um, you know, anything which... Um, anything we'll challenge that. that, no, absolutely. But it starts from the leadership and it starts from the top, does it not? Well, I think it's gonna, this, will, this will be one that, that run, runs and runs yeah, and, and potentially absolutely. gathers space. Right, going to switch it to something. Sam, I think you, you, um, you, you put this forward and you're too contrasting. I think I'm probably grossly oversimplifying it by saying that it's about whether or not you have your phones on um, in big meetings and, and, and conferences. But you have um, a piece in specialevents.com saying that the familiar call to turn off your mobile phones at the start of events set to become a thing of the past as spectator participation through mobile devices and social media starts to become a mainstay of the events industry. And then completely the opposite, we have a piece on smart meetings 
saying all about how fewer distractions create more effective meetings and that in the future conferences meetings we're gonna we're gonna leave our phones at the door and we're just gonna rely on good old human interaction what's gonna happen I th- well, first of all, I wish uh, we have Marty here. Marty, we're missing you today because I think from a media point of view, I think there's a question mark, you know, that the same week we can find two pieces of news within our industry and industry press that are completely and utterly conflicting. And one's based out in North America, one's based in the Middle East in terms of these particular news articles. Where do we sit, I suppose, is the great question. Mm-hmm. I can see the world changing again. I think we've been bombarded by technology. I certainly know from attending events in the past, I spent more time on my phone sharing content than than actually ingesting content. I think that shifted for me personally, um, especially as I pay all the bills now as well. Um, I see it from an MC point of view. I was going to say, from an MC, what do you prefer? Do you prefer the audience to be plugged into tech, or do you, or do you want their undivided attention on 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 the stage? I think that's a great question, and I think it also depends on what's happening at the event. And I think Richard will input on this. I think if um, if you're using technology, you're using apps um, for voting and for audience participation. I think it's great. It's quite challenging uh, from an MC point of view, certainly at the beginning of a conference, to know how many of your audience are actually using that app. Um, I like to see people engaged um, in their content, whatever that might be. So I'm a slightly conflicted person from a participant point of view. I'm I'm putting my phone away right now. Richard. Well, we've got our smart group conference next week and and part of it is an engagement through their phones to, to vote on particular answers to particular questions um my fear on that is that once you've got your phone on and you've got it in your hand you've opened it up and you voted then your attention is now back on your phone because emails start coming in or text or whatever and then you've slightly lost interest in what's going on on the stage what you need is a good mc to help you yeah, put those the, phones the away MC. any tips <laughs> just book shout sam allen <laughs> yeah book sam <laughs> allen <laughs> You were involved in big events in the you know in the nineties before before mobile phones before any of this were they oh, yeah. how Horses were they better were they um, <laughs> we, it 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 was that's why when they first came in and first were used um, almost uniformly then we did say switch your phones off because that's what we, we were you know people were transfixed by them because it was all very new and shiny and exciting um, and you're right it's, you know every meeting you go to housekeeping you know that's the fire exit says where the loose are you getting coffee. And, 45 minutes and switch your phone off, please. Um, and then we went through that whole iPad thing. So if you've got an iPad on your chair, use that. Now that, I think, is safer because it means that you're engaged through only one particular portal and you're not transfixed by your phone if anything else goes on in the world when you're supposed to be voting on a on a question from the, from the podium. Um, I like the idea of switching the phone off. I like the idea of being entertained and educated in something different. Um, and therefore... Um, I, I'm going to be interested to see what happens next week at our conference. But I also think that the responsibility is back. Sorry, podcast, list, podcast listeners, this is your responsibility as uh, meeting and event organisers that you need to have content that's engaging your audience. I've been, and I'm sure we've all sat through death by PowerPoint, mm. panel discussions that aren't engaging or aren't involving an audience, interviews where no one's interested in those questions or what's coming out. So... I believe that there's a real responsibility in your meeting design to actually design an effective and engaging meeting. Because I'm sorry if, uh, I mean, I've been to a meeting, I won't say where it was or who it was with, 
But I was watching the entire audience. Um, it was a, you know, there was a celebrity interviewer and they were interviewing people. It was a sort of panel interview. She didn't look once at the audience and I was just watching. I was sort of about 20 rows behind and people were online shopping. They were on Facebook. <laughs> and had she been worth her weight in, in, in what she was doing, she would have seen that. But prior to that, you've got to look and go, well, is this the sort of content that's going to get our audience engaged? And mm. I'm sure your conference, Richard, will have ticked all those boxes, understanding your participants, what you want them to think, feel and behave in that meeting and afterwards and have the appropriate content in Meeting design rocks. Was that a pitch for the MC? Absolutely not. It was, just, it was a picture of good meeting but design, you, you effective know what the meeting meetings design. Are like. They're always the ones that you don't put forward to your own meeting, what you put forward to your clients' meetings. <laughs> I think the secret is always to book Sam Allen, actually, and you'll, you'll be transfixed as long as she stands up. Yeah, that listener's but, always book always MC book. Sam Allen. News Digest team for a very good rate. Right, guys, we're almost out of time, but I just wanted to finish on some some numbers, which we've We talked, love a good number. We, love, we do love numbers. We love stats. <laughs> we, we love a good stat. We, we also love logistics, event logistics, the mm-hmm. nightmares of event logistics. We, we talked a few, episodes, a few episodes ago on the Event Lab podcast about the Kumea, remember, which was yes. the largest single gathering of people in the in the entire world, I think in history, every every time it happens yeah. in India, um, and I, I saw, saw this, um, which was about the Indian general election next, uh, which is happening on the eleventh of of April, and I thought I'd share some of the numbers with you just to uh, blow your minds from a kind of logistical point of view of how okay. they how they how they hit us with it how they manage this. So guess how many people vote in the Indian general election? Two hundred million. 300 million. So there's 900 million people in India, and of that, 830 million people are eligible to vote. Wow. And this really surprised me, more than 550 million actually do vote. Good grief. An awful lot of ballot papers. Awful lot of ballot Awful lot of those big black boxes with a slit in the top. That's also a really high turnout, isn't it? That's a huge turnout, yeah. Okay, so for all of those people, you need, guess how many polling stations you need? A lot. It's a big country, isn't it? It's a big country. (laughs) Uh, Oh, I don't know. uh, 5,000. You need, you're, you're, you're a fair way off. We, you need a million, or they have a million polling stations. Good grief. How many people do you need to man a polling station? For the, well, if there's anything like our polling station in uh, Elmbridge, that's about five. So they've got 10 million people wow. manning polling stations. Okay, that would make sense. Well, that's 10 million votes before we start, because at least they're there. Do you know how many pl- uh, political parties participate in the last election? What, we're, getting way, we're getting way off events <laughs> now. It's just <laughs> Crazy numbers. 464 political parties. This is a massive logistical operation. A massive logistical operation. 8,251 candidates. Can you imagine them trying to get Brexit through? I'm not sure it would happen. <laughs> I think I think that there's a, a, a big looking glass that we need to shine onto India and what's happening there. And uh, I'd like to put forward a suggestion to Ed and the Event Lab team that we do a podcast over in India. I think we should. Research on the, on the 11th or the 12th, on the day yes, after polling. during day. polling. Orkham Mayor Festival. How do they do it? Well, I think really encouraging. That is a huge turnout. And we were saying that, what was it, 43% or what it was that voted in the last referendum. And they and everybody been saying that is the biggest mandate of the country's ever given mm. to anything. And, you know, that's, you know, compared with them, tiny. Tiny. What's the biggest event you've ever done? Biggest event we've ever done is 6,500 people for the J.P. Morgan 
fun run in Battersea Park times two. So you do one day and then you do the next. Pulled it off? Yeah, brilliant. Easy. Every year. It's a dream. Sam? I've got my biggest MC job coming up, two and a half thousand anesthesiologists. Um, so that will be my biggest uh, Trying to keep them gig. Away, Trying to keep, yes, it? haven't heard that one yet. Um, and then in terms of events, I worked at the SECC, so we did some pretty big stuff. Um, two and a half thousand people, that goes a long way back. Yeah. I've emceed at Better Evolution and I had 1,200 people to try and corral into attention. I was there that day. You were there, Hospitality Rocks. You were it's great. A, oh, it's, it's a, a big, big number. It's a big number. Got to remember those people at those back rows. So, in are you Central Stage? Or you one yeah, Central Stage. Central and at Twickenham, obviously, uh, Twickenham Stadium, fair, a fair few. few people too. But not uh, not 900 million. We'll look forward to hearing how how it all goes with the anaesthetists. Anesthesiologists. Anesthesiologists. You can tell us about that, <laughs> that next time. Thanks very much, guys. Thank you, Ed. Have a, nice great, weeks. Have a great couple of weeks, Podders. I'm joined now by Fergus O'Connell, an expert in project management, as he shares his practical tips that you can use when planning your events. So today I am joined by... Fergus O'Connell, author of the Project Management book. I guess we could sort of start off. What what was the kind of inspiration that got you to start putting pen to paper? Well, I've been doing project management for a long time. I used to be a software person, and around so I'd seen lots of projects. Some succeeded, some really failed, and I got interested in particularly why had they failed. And so about 1990, I started to put together some notes about why I thought the project had failed. And was there a sort of a recipe that would sort of harness the positive things in projects and reduce the effect of the negative things? And the notes eventually grew into a book and the book got published and became a company. I I started a company and I've written other books on project management since then on various aspects of it. And the thing that sort of unites all the books really is that it's common sense project management. Um, There's a whole industry built around making project management complicated. And it seems to me that it's not really like the project may be complicated, you know, something like the channel tunnel or building the shard or something. But but project management isn't complicated. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, it sounds like there were sort of of clear kind of challenges that you were kind of witnessing lots of projects running into. What were the most common challenges that you saw? I think you've got to start from the point of view that project management requires us to do something that we actually can't do. We have to predict the future and make it come true. In other words, we have to build a plan and then make the plan happen. And clearly nobody can do that because if we could, you and I wouldn't be here. We'd be down at the racetrack. We'd be (laughs) spending our nights in casinos. We'd be buying lottery tickets if we could predict the future and make it come true. And then if that wasn't bad enough, we often get asked to make these predictions in a very strange way. So in many, many companies, especially high-tech or knowledge-based companies, the boss comes along, says to somebody, here's the project, I don't know much about it, but it's got to be done by this date for this budget with these people. Good luck. And what happens next is that more often than not, people just say, sure. And, you know, it seems to me that the main reason projects go wrong is that they were never actually possible in the first place. Somebody said, here's the project and, you know, here are these various constraints. And everybody said, sure. So the first idea, I think people should take away from this little talk is to stop saying sure you know if you're going to buy deodorant you can say sure but (laughs) but apart from that you shouldn't say it and instead if somebody hands you a project and says it's got to be done by this date or for this budget all you do is you say i'm going to have a look at it and that's the only thing you commit to so that's the first idea that people could take away and then The way somebody takes a look at the project is there's about four or five things they have to do, starting with what exactly is the goal of this project? And, you know, 
I reluctantly mentioned the B word, Brexit, but there's lots of people now saying how they knew that Brexit wasn't going to succeed. But like I knew two years ago, Brexit wasn't going to succeed. Not, And this is not like a political statement on my part. It's a project management statement because a successful project is all about happy stakeholders. In other words, you tell the stakeholders what they're going to get from the project and that's what they get. And if you can achieve that, you've got a successful project. And Brexit didn't start there. Nobody, we may just about have understood who the stakeholders were, but nobody tried to gather together what they were trying to get from the project. And the result is what we have now, that we're trying to do now what we should have done two years ago. Um, so that's the first thing is to figure out, you know, what's the project about and what does success look like? How will we know when it's done? How will we know that we've crossed the line? So that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing then is we've got to try and build a plan for the project. It seems to me a, a plan is basically a sequence of things that has to be done. And it seems to me that there are essentially three ways that these sequences get built. So the first one is people do it after the project has failed, right? So that's known as a post-mortem. It's where people are saying, well, this is what we should have done. And that's kind of what's happening a bit with Brexit now. Uh, the second one, which is very popular, is that we firefight our way through the project. In other words, we build a sequence of jobs as we go. Um, and you know, firefighting for all sorts of reasons is a really bad idea. It's a really inefficient idea. And then the third possibility is before the project starts, once we've figured out the goal, we try to figure out as much of the sequence of jobs as we can. And and the key to doing that is to put lots of detail in the plan and then to use whatever information we have from previous similar projects to try and build a plan. It sounds like the more kind of communication that you can do early on, the better. And leaders and perhaps the people that they're assigning these projects to, and I guess in our case it's often event organisers who are having to manage the kind of many stakeholders, as you mentioned. They've got venues, they've got internal stakeholders at their company, yeah. the leaders who are assigning these events. So it sounds like the more communication that they do at the start, the more planning that they do back and forth between the event organiser and then perhaps their, the leadership at the company the better. Yeah, totally. I mean, I have this expression that a little planning beats a lot of firefighting, but it's really true. You know, like we do projects in a way that, for example, when we're cooking dinner, we would never do. You know, I mean, try and imagine you were cooking dinner and you said, okay, what'll I cook for dinner? And you say, hmm, I'd like some pasta. So you, you go into the cupboard, you put the pasta on the cooker, and then you say, oh, sauce would be good for the pasta. Look in the cupboard again, there's no sauce. You say, okay, got to go down to the shop. Uh, hopefully you turn off the gas at that stage to stop the pasta from, you know, cooking or blowing up. And, you know, we would never cook a meal like that. I mean, with a meal, we have a recipe either in a book or in our heads. And we follow this. We get the raw materials, first of all, and then we follow the steps. But in, in projects, that whole discipline, in many projects, that whole discipline just goes out the window and people just, you know, randomly do things. Whereas if they'd done a little bit of planning, the whole thing would have been a lot easier. It would have been a lot more efficient. It would have cost less. And the outcome would have been much more uh, predictable. So I guess, like, I guess what sort of practical advice would you give for approaching planning? Well, I've said some of the things already. Um, the most important one, the one where Brexit failed, is um, figure out who the stakeholders are, who they all are, and ask them what they hope to get from the project. D don't assume that you know, don't assume it's the same for everybody, and just get that in writing. And, and that gives you the destination of the journey then, really, if you want to think of a project like that. So that's, that's the first thing.
So I guess once you have all of those, st- like the clear idea of who your stakeholders is, is there a, would you have advice for kind of managing those as the project progresses? Well, yeah. Um, w- once you've built the plan, so once you've built the plan, the next key point at which you're going to have to manage the stakeholders is the plan may tell you, you know, when they give you a project, they give you two things. They give you the project and they give you constraints. Like, for example, it's got to be done for this fixed budget or it's got to be done by that date. Um, you know, Brexit's a good example of it's got to be done by that date. So when you build a plan, then the first possibility is that the plan says the constraints are achievable. So that's terrific. This is what we all want. But more often than not, the plan says that the constraints aren't achievable. And then what often happens is people just throw away the plan and they just say sure anyway on the basis that, you know, their boss has ordered them to do it or the company says it has to be done. So what we teach on our courses, for example, is that If the plan says the constraints aren't achievable, the plan can be tweaked. You can do things like, what if we add more people? What if we change the end date? What if we reduce the scope of the project? And by doing these various things, you can come up with other versions of the plan. And all we need then is one version that the stakeholders say, you know, yeah, I'd accept that. You know, project managers have a huge tendency to treat constraints that we get from our bosses as though they came from God. And what I try to teach people is that they don't come from God. They're more like a wish list for Santa, you know, and we'd really like to give our stakeholders everything that they've asked for Christmas, but it may not actually be possible. And then we need to do two things. We need to tell them it's not possible. You know, you can't have this entire Santa Claus shopping list, but we can give you this much of it. And that's the second point at which we need to as you say, communicate with the stakeholders. And after that, then, once the stakeholders have agreed to a plan, we just need to keep them in the loop. And that's where something like status reporting comes in. And again, what we teach on our courses is that a week is probably, every week is probably a good time to send some kind of status update. You know, I think it was Harold Wilson who said a week is a long time in politics, but a week is a long time in a project too. And there's essentially only 50 of them in the year. So we need to show our stakeholders that we're spending them wisely. And probably those are the three points really. At the beginning, to find out what they want. At the point where we tell them, here's what we can do. And then we just tell them, here's how we're doing, you know, until we get to the end. Uh, So I guess once the... The project is complete, again, and in, in our industry, once you've had the event, the kind of culmination of the project, is are there is there advice you'd have for kind of how you'd you then look back on it and the ways you try to learn from that event? So like, yeah, yeah. I mean, events are really interesting because often it's kind of the same event, maybe year after year or quarter after quarter or something like that. So, I mean, from a project management point of view, that's a golden opportunity because if you keep, let's say you do the event for the first time ever in the history of the world. If you keep, so you build a plan and do all the things I talked about and you then capture what actually happened as opposed to what you planned. And even if the two are wildly apart, even if you didn't get it very right, what you now have is you have a template for the next time you run the event. And so over time, um, even if the events change a little bit, they won't fundamentally change. And over time, then, you can build up a really, really accurate way of predicting the future of building plans. Uh, so that that's that's one thing I would say. At the end of a particular event, capture what actually panned out, you know, the, the plan as it actually turned out. So capture that. And then there's two other things to do, I think. One is to... Ask yourself, you know, I, I've seen a lot of postmortems on projects over the years, and I think it's true to say that I've never seen a bad one. But also, 
you often don't see action as a result of these post-mortems. You know, somebody will do a post-mortem, they'll come up with 20 brilliant recommendations of things we should do differently, and then nothing happens after that because who has time to carry out the recommendations? So, again, what we teach is look back over the project and ask yourself, is there just one thing that we did well? You know, one thing that really helped us, that made a difference, and let's identify that. You know, it might be some little technique we developed or template we used or supplier we found was brilliant or something like that. And let's let's not just identify it for ourselves, but let's communicate it to all our colleagues who have to do the same job. And then, so that's a kind of a positive thing. And then similarly, a negative thing. What's one thing which if we could rewind the clock, we would do differently? You know, this caused us problems, it screwed us up. Had we known about this, we would have done something different. And again, if, if we could share that with all our colleagues, then what you would see in an organisation is you know, gradual from the ground up project management improvement, you know, no big project management improvement process, no management required, management buy-in required, no budget, just the people at the coalface um, making it better for themselves and for their colleagues, you know. So that, that would be the advice. So I think lots of useful stuff there for, especially for apps events professionals who are come coming up to organizing their first event who might might be new to the industry um i guess one of of the themes that we've been addressing a lot kind of recently on the podcast is leadership it's our kind of over this two months we're we're focusing on leadership focusing on professional development um so i guess just one of the things just wanted to perhaps end on was would you have any kind of practical advice for i guess the leaders in companies who are not necessarily organized specifically organizing the project but they're overseeing lots of people who are kind of in those project management roles um, well, I can tell you the one thing that changed my sort of outlook on leadership. Um, and it's a very simple thing, I think. Um, every one of us has a natural sort of, if we are a leader, we have a natural leadership style. We can think of people who are very maybe micromanaging, very hands-on. My natural style is I'm very hands-off. Um, you know, there's an expression... Uh, there's no point in having a dog and barking yourself. Uh, and what it means is that if you have a dog, the dog should bark. You, you don't have to bark. And so if you're leading people, let the people do what they're meant to do. Um, but when I started leading about four or five years, two or three years into my career, um, what I would do with the people that were working for me is I would use my natural style with all of them. You know, I would be very hands off. And for some people that worked brilliantly. They thrived in that environment. And then other people, it didn't work at all. You know, they screwed up, They things went badly wrong. And then, first of all, I would feel betrayed, let down. How could they do this to me? You know, I gave them all this freedom and here's how they treat me. And it was about six years, I think, into my career that I went on a project management course, which was a really bad course. Um, it was in Bournemouth. So that was really nice. And my hotel room overlooked the sea. And that was really nice. But I remember on the very last day of the course, the very last session, one of the guys teaching it started talking about this business of leadership styles. And the simple point he made was that whatever your personality is, different things work with different people. You know, if somebody is very skilled and very motivated, hands off is great. But if somebody is a trainee and you're hands off with them or they're brand new, um, it's like throwing them in the deep end and expecting them to swim. And I remember when he said this, I had a huge light bulb moment where I thought, that's what I've been doing wrong all this time. And um, 
I remember I came back to the office and I started doing what the guy had said, like thinking about the situation, hands off in certain situations, micromanaging in others and various kind of things in between. And after about two weeks, I remember some one of my colleagues said to me, he said, hmm, he said, that must have been a really good course you were on. And what he really meant was, you know, you were really bad up until now. But but you've improved a lot since the course. So I think that's the one, from my own experience, that's one of the things I'd pass on, that irrespective of what your personality is, different things work in different circumstances and to be cognizant of that. So yeah, yeah thank you very much for, for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for asking me along. It's a rather unusual feature now with a rather unusual company as Benjamin Edmonds from the Higher Space team gets a taste of the world of Smith and Sinclair who bring a sense of fun to events, creating unique experiences through their boozy confections. We have got some very, very exciting treats and goodies here tonight. Uh, I'm joined by the fantastic Emile Bernard, co-founder and head of innovation at Smith and Sinclair, and the wonderful Grace Bryan, head of events and brand partnerships. Guys, how how are you? Absolute, How's it all going? Absolutely Feeling fantastic. Good. Sun's out. Got some tinnies on the table. Got some of our products. Always excited to show people. So um, yeah, Emil, you you obviously kicked everything off. Yeah. So tell us tell us a bit about the journey of Smith and Sinclair. <laughs> where where did you start? And what's the what's the real story? What's the real story. So the journey, apart from being a really windy one, as any uh, person that started a business will actually tell you. Um, so it started off with myself and my business partner, Melanie Goldsmith. Yeah, we started this uh, five and a bit years ago now. Um, and it wasn't, re- we actually didn't set out to start a business, um, coincidentally. Um, I'm a chef by trade and uh, Mel was actually, uh, she has she did a master's in art events management and she was very involved with that just kind of like um getting the jazz stage uh, ready for uh, during festivals and then she uh, she went and moved on and did uh, loads of pr work um we both quit our jobs at the same time roughly um and she was obsessed with board games and then she uh, always ever like go to mel's house uh, we're gonna have a night of board games get a bit get a bit quite aggressive <laughs> yeah, that's fair. It's bit, board bit games. aggressive. She's very competitive. Board game night. Quite competitive and just, uh, just mandatory fun. So basically, <laughs> what she wanted to do, Evan said you should actually make a night of this. Um, so she managed to book out this place in East London. I don't think it's around anymore, but this is a lovely little uh, intimate um, basement bar. And it was a dating night that was surrounding board games. And the whole idea behind it was when you're a kid and you are taken around someone else's house and you're playing board games you have that in common. It's just like a music festival. If you have something in common with someone, instantly you kind of snap. Um, and the whole premise of it was we were trying to explore adult play. Kids, adults acting like kids, just have that childlike inhibition. And I was helping her out with those nights. And the venue owner knew the global brand ambassador for Hendrix Gin at the time. And uh, he said, I'll, get, I'll invite him over. Maybe he'll like the night and he'll sponsor the night. Um, so Mel and I was like, okay, we'll, we'll make something that will really impress him. And then maybe he'll look at it. He'll want to give us the bottles, sponsor the night, you know, get the, th- get the ball rolling. And uh, I decided to take some Hendrix gin and turn it into a gummy. So just an alcoholic gummy, which was the embodiment of the night, was something childlike and something adult and just put them together and just have that kind of synergy. Um, he came to the night 
and he's diabetic, so didn't touch him. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, Classic Smithers and Claire vibe right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, did, did not do our homework there. But um, everyone at the night loved it. So they kept trying it, trying it, trying it. And then uh, the next week, uh, we spread the uh, um, uh, how many flavours we had. And we kind of had, had them dotted around the room. They were um, prizes for certain games that you won. And people were saying, hey, you should come to this thing that I have going on in Berwick Street or you should come to this thing with those things with the, with the gummies and try them out there and we just kept saying yes okay we'll go there we'll do that we'll go there do that and then next thing you know we're just uh, stood under a 90 pound gazebo on Berwick Street <laughs> and uh, yeah we're selling sweets to strangers and then with that we sold 3,000 pounds worth of uh, um, gummies in three weeks with that money wow. we yeah we uh, we uh, made bought a website and then we managed to get a really big deal uh, for 20,000 gummies uh, for um, Imbibe Live. And if you know, if people don't know what Imbibe Live is, it's just a really big drink trade show. And basically, we were part of their marketing campaign. And 3,333 uh, of three different flavors were sent out um, with our faces attached to the um, Imbibe magazine. And people had to guess what flavor they had. And then overnight, just kind of just kicks out of the business. And it's just been snowballing effect ever since and then suddenly you've been plunged from the world of being a chef into running a business yeah and sort of leading the charge a little bit so how, how did you find that journey of sort of really i guess probably took you completely out of your comfort zone and then into something you never expected yeah absolutely i mean when i was a chef i was a chef for 10 years and for all 10 years i was uh, in the pastry section for for three months so it's actually not my specialty. Um, I mean, and also we we quit our jobs because of the amount of hours we were both working. So it's actually quite stupid that we started a business. But the whole work ethic behind what we do day to day is not nothing new. But it's just still to this day we're just learning every single day. We have it's just in essence been a fake it till you make it mentality um, <laughs> and just having the like uh, imposter syndrome just every single day so it's it's always learning always learning and it's just all about surrounding yourself with people that have absolutely gone through, through certain things so um, having mentors is, was really really integral at the, uh, the first year or two of the business just because we had absolutely no idea what we we're doing are we meant to pay VAT oops that kind of, that kind of thing in the first yeah. couple of months and then um, yeah, there was a lot of lots of loading curves. Well, I think that's one of the important things in in any walk of life is that you don't wake up and think I know everything. Mm. I don't need to worry about <clears throat> this or that and whatever because I know it all. Yeah, you've got to get up and think right. Okay, what what am I going to learn today? Yeah, and then try and apply that to whatever situation you're in, whether it's you're down at I don't know a university or something, trying to get yourself into a, being a doctor or something, or whether you're launching your own company and trying to lead teams and and grow them to become much better than they are today absolutely i couldn't agree more i mean the amount of times we've just had made monumental mistakes but we've just had the i, I don't know whether it's bravery or stupidity to go ahead and do one of these uh, one of these many things and as long as you learn from those mistakes and mm. you keep moving forward and you just keep adapting to those uh, little little tweaks that you, you you find you have to do is just really important how many of the mistakes were due to over-intoxication? You know what? In the early days, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so being a chef, um, yeah, you'd always have the head chef behind you with a, with, with a pan, making sure you're tasting as you go, taste, 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 taste. Um, so I kind of brought that mentality to when I was uh, producing. So every single different stage I taste, and because it's so alcoholic in the early stages of the cooking towards 
uh, compared to the end stages. I'm just continuously tasting, tasting. Uh, yeah, I had my head in the porcelain a couple of days of manufacturing. <laughs> so it's, yeah. It's a uh, fun way of life, isn't it? It's, it's a different way of life. <laughs> <laughs> but how do you, so sort of fast forward to today. Yeah. Um, much larger company. Yeah. Doing lots of fantastic things. I know Grace has been rushing everywhere, meeting lots of interesting people and really sort of being a great advocate for the brand. Yeah. Um, how do you, how do you carry on that culture within and just make sure that the whole team are engaged in learning every day and <clears> trying new things and almost that they're just not scared to fail so that you have that constant flow of innovation? Um, I can answer a bit of that and then maybe you can answer yeah. a little bit after. Um, I mean, there's so many different things that we do. We try to do like in-house stuff and we have little field trips here and there. Um, we're, we're quite an active team having our ear to the ground. So we're, we're always really in the know. I mean, we're, we're, we're subscribed to every single possible um, bit of media paraphernalia you could think of within the industry. Um, but quite often... I mean, recently now we've we've uh, started doing innovation days. So I forget that maybe not everyone knows how to make a cocktail and what the intricate details of what goes into it. Like what what is why do you put lemon in? Why do you put uh, eggs egg whites in? So we'll do in house like cocktail masterclasses, and we actually um, work really closely with a, a company called MSK, which is um, a hyper specialist ingredient um, uh, supplier for chefs. So any Michelin star kitchen, you'll see all these MSK things. All these like in a Heston kitchen, you'll you'll see all that stuff. And we have a really good relationship with uh, the people up there. So uh, the other week, we ch- I just took all the team up there, and we just had a showcase of innovation and just to get everyone excited about what is the possibility. How how could you push this particular product to its limits to what we don't necessarily think is possible of. Uh, individual products which we'll kind of go into detail with some of the stuff we have in front of you but um yeah we're always going to cocktail bars grace is definitely always going to cocktail bars and in a personal time part of my I... job so <laughs> it's gonna hate whatever um but yeah apart from just continuously uh seeing what's out there and going out there and being super 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 active and having internal um conversations uh, there are a thousand ways of keeping uh, up to date. I mean, Grace, you could probably talk more on that. Yeah, I think the team itself all have a really keen interest in what's going on. So as much as we want to keep that theme going, I think everyone that works for the team <coughs> right now actually has a genuine interest in what's happening. So we're really active with like, you know, there was a YSL um, petrol station thing for Coachella that they're doing. And we found the link. And I think three of us ended up sending the same link to our sort of company email address. So everyone's got a real keen interest interest to see what's going on and I think as well in terms of sort of keeping the culture alive and maybe doing something wrong and kind of wanting to cry in a corner about it we're very open with our mistakes so from top to bottom Mel and Emil if they've ever done something that they're like I've really perhaps not followed the right route or something hasn't fallen through they're very open with it same as everyone else from top to bottom so mm. we kind of celebrate our mistakes yeah. if that makes any sense whatsoever so like if you're feeling like you've had a really bad day and like believe me with events it happens a lot where you've done something <laughs> I don't think we've being... ever seen bad days in events <laughs> no. <laughs> but maybe something get de- didn't get delivered or something you know broke and it's a key element of what you've done and you're like oh I should have made two and it's like you go in the office and you talk about it and everyone's like yeah but you know why don't we do this or comes up with a suggestion or makes you feel like you're not a bad person <laughs> like I just think we're very open with that and it helps with going through the process and being really upfront about stuff so we celebrate wins and we celebrate 
Yeah, mistakes. Yeah, and, and kind of touching on that and what I was talking about earlier, um, because we have our ear to the ground so much, we also get a bit lost in what the uh, general public wants, know, or need. So uh, quite recently, we just decided to like, wait, why are we doing this? This one product, maybe. Why, why are we just going, you know, all pistols blazing? And uh, we decided to have a customer feedback uh, session. So we just got a bunch of people, all different types of demographics, uh, tried all the pro- products and what do you like about this? What don't you like about this? And you know what? People can be brutal. Yes, very, <laughs> right. very brutal. <laughs> right to your face. But it's a really good learning curve. Just listening to the people. Like, what, what do you like? What don't you like? Read that. Does that make any sense? And the whole team was a part of that session. Yeah. So again, it's like being really open with everyone. We don't want to just go back to the office and be like, everyone loved it. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, no one had any criticism. No <laughs> one said that there was something we can change. We just, we win all the time. Like everyone from the team was a part of that particular event and it's everyone from, you know, someone that's, you know, does like an office manager role, she's involved and she's seeing what's going on so that if someone calls, she's not like, I don't know, I just work for a company and I look after the space. Like we want everyone to be involved at every touch point. So when we're doing things like that, when we're doing innovation, like everyone... Mm. is involved and reads the links and sees what's going on so that they can be involved like tasting sessions Emil is constantly making new things whether it's for a brief for events where we're doing a new product development or an actual event it's not just tastings for me because it's my event it's a tasting for the whole group so I think we keep everyone really involved and really interested so that they then want to continue that themselves and one of our whole things as culture is have an interest like mm. doesn't matter what you're interested you can come in and say your interest is balloons like it, it doesn't matter like as long as you have an interest and you're keen to talk about it like to us that's an interest it doesn't matter like we're all very open to learning new stuff so it's like come to the come to the table with something like don't mm. just be like i just really love brunch like fair enough that's one of my things but like <laughs> <She does love. laughs> but you know come come with something come with something that we can talk about and i think that's something that everyone in the team definitely has yeah. and when we're hiring we're we're kind of wanting to know about them because yeah. this job is very much about personality and you know, being interested in something new and people haven't seen it, so you kind of got to yeah, got to be a little bit wacky, haven't you, to Absolutely. bring these crazy ideas to life. And it's it's good that you you don't sort of condemn anyone to just being sat doing spreadsheets and doing all the finance stuff. And no, no, <clears throat> actually, we haven't done it in a little while, but there was something that um, we used to do a hell of a lot, which involves app. Everyone has to mandatory fun. Uh, the fake brief. Yeah. So we found out um, when we used to get loads of these briefs through from different companies, whether they're drinks companies or events companies. Grace would stand up in front of the office, and we'd have a little, uh, um, uh, just a bit of time, just cordoned off, and everyone has to. Uh, be involved because I start off with a contemporary dance <laughs> oh nice and then I bring the whiteboard out with my pre-made design of what we want to talk about so yeah. <laughs> and yeah we just found that it's that when we have these briefs that's when we get some of our most innovative ideas so we just have a fake brief like this tequila company wants to do this da, 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 da. and then everyone has to throw in their ideas and so yeah some some of the funnest ideas we've had have come from those ideas uh, from those uh, fake briefs and uh, yeah, an old employee actually said like a ridiculous thing about floating, and then he was like, "Oh, sorry, this stupid idea." He's like, "Wait, <laughs> I like that. Let's do floating food." <laughs> and we can I'd do love, floating food. So. I'd like to see floating food. Doesn't want floating food? That's yeah. amazing. It's very, yeah. very cool. But we it's actually... just about getting them being creative and making sure everyone feels involved in that process. Yeah. It's just because you work in finance doesn't mean that you're not creative. Yeah, everyone's got creative in some way so it's getting it's how you tap into that yeah yeah. (laughs) we want 
adult play, which is our whole brand's vice living whatever you yeah. want to call it like that's ethos. what we live ethos thank you but you know we, we want that to be adult play for the people that work at the company as well it's what we talk about in every aspect of yeah. smith sinclair and if we're not living that ourselves it's kind of yeah. fake news if that makes yeah. any sense we're trying to make adult be more fun yes it's key what i'd love to do is see what this culture can deliver are you uh, in, uh, suggesting we're going to get into the? Into I, some I of the think it, I think we should tap into the tinnies. Tap right. into the tinnies. Okay. If you'd like to hear the full flavour experience, you can hear Benjamin tasting all of their creations in our bonus episode that should be available in your podcast feed now. I've got really... fireballs coming towards my face. <laughs> oh, it smells fantastic. I have a little nibble of it. Oh, that's glorious. Oh. Fantastic. That is strong. Just been taken taken aback by the flavour there. Mm. <laughs> Going to keep eating it. It's very, very good. Really? I think you guys should join me as well. As you like it. As always, you can find links to everything mentioned in the episode in the show notes below. If you enjoy the show, make sure to rate us on iTunes or your podcast app of choice. You can follow all that we do on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at eventlab underscore online. If you have any questions you'd like to submit to the News Digest or you'd like to get in contact with the show, you can email us at eventlab at Thanks very much for listening.